Good morning. My name is Adam, as uh, Chris had said, uh, pastor here at Bethany. A couple things I want to say. That's, uh, you saw the bumper video. There's a lot of different names for Jesus in the scriptures. Uh, one of them is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that's what we celebrate this Christmas season. We're going to unpack that here uh, starting this morning. Uh, and then do it over uh, all the way into the new year, actually, to start the new year. A couple things I want to mention first, uh, just some things. I just want to kind of uh, ask you to be praying for and just some family news, if you will. First one is some of you know Jane Eby. Uh, she passed away this week, and the Eby family and a number of people here have uh, been a part of the foundation of this church in a lot of ways. And so her viewing is this evening. There's some information for you there. Uh, you've got some uh, emails out. I believe it's 6 to 8. Um, and then tomorrow, her uh, service happens at 2 o'clock. Uh, so I want to encourage you guys to come on out, uh, those of you who are able to, either tonight to support the family or um, uh, tomorrow for that service. Next thing I just want to ask your prayer for is, uh, you guys know Chris. He was here last week. You got an email this week. If you don't know this, um, hope, mostly most of you know this if you're here. We got Chris has accepted a position at Victory Church in Ephrata. Uh, so I want to ask you to continue to pray, uh, not only for Chris and his family, but pray for Bethany. Um, our leaders met this week, and as change uh, goes, change is hard, uh, especially change that is, you're not always ready for, or uh, it kind of catches you off guard maybe. Uh, change can be tricky and difficult and raise different emotions and um, concerns and start asking questions and wrestling, looking at future. So again, that's kind of where our leaders are at right now, so I'd ask you to be praying for them. Be praying for me. I'd ask for prayer for me. Um, I'm in a raw spot right now, to be honest, not just because of Chris, but there's a lot of things happening in my personal life right now that I just would appreciate uh, prayer for. Uh, so with that said, um, let's kind of, I'm sorry, I have got it. there we go. Um, did I mess you up, Sheldon? You okay? Good. Uh, uh, with is what we're going to kind of kick around, and here's what we're going to do this morning. Um, where we're going to track and go is uh, we're going to talk about Jesus and the fact that his name, Emmanuel, one of the names given him in the Christmas season, which means God with us. So this morning, I want to start by asking just kind of who God is and kind of reflecting on, on the person of God. Um, really throughout this series, we're asking, is God, is this thing called Jesus, Christianity, the Bible, the church, is it relevant to you? Is it relevant to me? What impact does it really make in my life? And I think Christmas season really helps us answer those questions in a powerful way. But to kind of um, think about our culture around us, let me give you some statistics that I think that will open us up to this series uh, in, a, in, a, in a strong way. Um, uh, the Harris Group, uh, they, they ask, there's, there's a poll, polling group that comes around every so three, four years and kind of begins to wrestle with what does culture, what does American culture, what do the people uh, in America believe about religion, spirituality, and God. And I want to share some of those statistics with you because I think it'll, they're, they're a bit alarming. Um, there's, there's, you'll see a trend in these that, that should push in on us a little bit. Um, but the first one is this. So these are the statistics. So they ask the question, do you believe in God? 74% of Americans say yes. Now, I want to give you the statistics from just three years ago. Uh, three years ago, the percentage was 82 uh, the question is asked, do you believe in heaven? 68% say yes. Three years ago, 75%. Uh, do you believe that Jesus is God? 68% say yes. Just a few years ago, 72%. You guys seen the trend, the, the, this, this downward trend? Do you believe in devil, the devil and a literal hell? 
Uh, 58% say yes. Just a few years ago, 62%. Now, this one, was, this one was especially interesting. Do you believe, so the one question was, do you believe in God? This question is, do you believe with absolute certainty that God, in, in fact, exists? Um, so, I mean, you're willing to stake your life on it, not just a simple, easy, yeah, I believe in God. Um, with absolute certainty, 54% of Americans right now say yes. Uh, just a few years ago, that was at 66%. A Darwinian theory of evolution, do you believe in it? Uh, this, uh, this time around, 47% say yes. Just a few years ago, 42%. Um, now, this one, this is the most interesting, and this will kind of push into our series this morning. Um, do you, are you consider yourself religious? Uh, and, and you ask those questions, and there's this none or not at all category that is at 23% right now. Just a few years ago, it was at 12%. Now, as you look at these numbers and wrestle with them and begin to look at our culture around us, um, I would say, man, it's a bit alarming. And I believe some alarm bells should begin to ring for those of us, especially those of you that say, man, the church is the hope of the world because we steward the message of Jesus. This thing that we're about week in and week out about, about holding on to the beauty of who God is, who Jesus is, and we're called to take this message to a lost and broken and hurting world. That's our mission. That's our message But man, it's going the other direction. That should begin to cause us to step in, ask some questions, wrestle with some things. Now, what's interesting about these statistics, let me ask you this, and let me ask you this. Do you think our culture is spiritual? Spiritual. Now, I think some of you, I see right now, yeah, it is. Spirituality, though though views of God and, and religion and Christianity are tailing, spirituality, when you ask people, are you spiritual, guess where those statistics are going? They're skyrocketing. I mean, they're just taking off. It's so fascinating. Well, here, let me give you a definition of spirituality. This is Brene Brown. I don't know if she's a believer or not. Sometimes I think she is. I mean, in a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Sometimes I read her and I think, I think she is. Other times I read her, I'm like, I'm not sure. But she's a researcher in Texas. Um, she specifically focuses on the area of shame and guilt and belonging and connectedness. So, so she has a lot to say. So this is her definition of spirituality. I just want to put it up here to show you um, how, when I say spirituality, this is how the world around us defines it. Recognizing and celebrating that we are all intricately, goodness, there's a big word, inextricably connected to each other by a power greater than all of us, and that our connection to to that power and to one another is grounded in love and compassion. So you see what spirituality, how the way they define it, in other words, they're saying spirituality is there's this power that pulls us all together, and it's grounded in love and compassion. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at our world, this, this is huge right now. Right now, there are network television shows that would have never aired in the 90s when I was, when I was in high school, late, late 80s, early 90s. God friended me. Any of you watching that show right now or have seen it? I mean, that show would have, ne- I mean, CBS is putting big money into that, but that show would have never made it in the late 80s, early 90s. But it is centered all around this definition of interconnectedness. And the whole entire show is the fact that we are all intricately woven together. Um, this show, A Million Little Things, I showed a clip from it last week, and some of you maybe are catching that show. Again, not here endorsing the shows. Just, they really put big monies put into these shows, and, and the American culture sucks them up and like, yeah, we love these. A Million Little Things is all about how all of our actions and interactions and reactions are all tied together. The show, This Is Us, I absolutely love the show, This Is Us, and I'm, I'm uh, kind of catching up on it right now. It's, I said, made a joke last week. I sit down on the bike, and I ride. I'm trying to get this thing a little smaller, and 
and I'm biking away and the tears are streaming. Um, I guess caught the show the other week, the Thanksgiving episode, where there's three triplets in this show. One of them's adopted. Two of them are biological. Uh, they were all born into the same day. Uh, the one is now, they're showing a scene where he's trying to get into college. And, and to get into college, he had to write an essay to say, who is the most important person in my life? And, he's, and, he, and he ultimately comes to this conclusion, and it, it's this powerful scene, and it, it grabs your heart. But it's all of this. He says, there is, you can't boil it down to one person because we're all intricately connected. Now, as I step back and I look at this, and I think, man, this is fascinating. When you ask people, does God... Does God exist? Do you believe in him? Are you absolutely sure? And you begin to push in on some, some core tenets of the teachings of Christianity. Statistics are tailing off, but then we have this spirituality piece that is increasing. Well, here's what I want to um, kind of, I was like, wow, this is 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, this is written from a guy by the name of Paul. Uh, some of you are here and say, I know who Paul is. Well, others of you may not. Paul is a guy who, um, who hated Christ. Uh, he was a, he was a, had his PhD in religion, in Jewish thinking, in essence. I mean, you could, this guy was a brilliant Jewish scholar. Um, he was a part of the Jewish religious system. And when Jesus comes along, Paul's like, man, take anything out associated with Jesus. And he actually kills people and wipes, tries to take things out. Then he meets Jesus, spends three years in the wilderness with him, and then he makes it his mission to advance the church. So he's done that for years. And now this, this, this letter is written to a guy named Timothy, who's a pastor. He's timid. We know that of him. He, he has a weak stomach. He's, he's at times has a hard time standing up and really being courageous and, and defending the faith. And we see that through some of the writings that as you read the letters, well, this is second Timothy because it's written to, it's the second letter we have written to him. And in this letter, Paul is, Paul's at the end of his life and Paul is about to, to move on uh, into eternity, into heaven. And Paul, I mean, you read this letter, it's like a father. It's like this, this, when you read the whole letter, this overwhelming compassion and love for this young pastor. And then he says this, Timothy, you should know this, that in the last days, there will be very difficult times. Let me pause here. So he's writing to this Timothy, 2,000 years ago this is written, saying, hey, you should know this. As you minister, as you lead as a pastor, you're going to be leading in difficult times. Now, this was 2,000 years ago, so fast forward, and I'm amazed that the prof- this is prophecy. This is prophecy meaning the foretelling of the future. What, what Paul says to this young Timothy is mind-blowing. It says, for people, look at our culture and see if you don't see this verse being lived out. For people will love only themselves and their money. What do you think? American culture? Maybe. <laughs> they will be boastful and proud. <laughs> Have you scrolled through your social media feed recently? I mean, listen to the talking heads out there. Um, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. Right there. I mean, that word alone, ungrateful, you're like, man, that is, that is, I hear that talk all the time. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. Now, you read that and you're like, oh my goodness, this was 2,000 years ago. This guy, Paul, saying, Timothy, be careful in the end days as we approach the end. Uh, this is what the world's like. And I look at this and I think, man, holy, wow, that's our world. Now, the next verse, the next verse is striking. And I think it describes our culture, the statistics I just showed you. They will act religious. Now, some translations say they, they embrace a form of godliness. 
Um, the New Living puts the word religion in there. So you can go multiple ways. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. In other words, they're going to stay spiritual. They're going to draw into the, the, the spiritual reality, and they're going to act that way, but yet they're going to reject. They reject something, and that is the power that could make them godly. So they're going to act. They're going to embrace this form of godliness, but they're really not going to be godly. And then Paul says to Timothy, young Timothy, man, stay away from people like that. Now, that's for a whole. Some of you go, I, wish, I was going to just kind of cut that off there because that's a whole other sermon series. You're like, what does that mean? I shouldn't hang out with my friends. that are. So that's a whole other sermon series. But for right now, focus on this sentence. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Now, I don't know about you, um, but I think that's our culture today. That's it. Spiritual to the core. Highly spiritual. And it's not all bad. I want to be very clear about that. That interconnected piece is huge. We need it in the church. It's how we're created. So it's not all bad. I'm not, I'm not sitting here attacking it. But I'm saying it's lacking something. It's missing something. It's missing. They reject the power that could make them godly, that could really bring them together. What I want to do this morning, that power, I want to talk about that power, and I believe it's the person of God and in the gospel of Jesus who came to us at Christmas time. I want to step in on the ground floor, and I want to ask the question, the very first words of your scriptures, if you open them up in Genesis, you don't need to, I'm just saying, when you go there, it says, in the beginning, some of you know it, what's it say? In the beginning, God. Right out of the scriptures that introduce themselves. What I found fascinating is the scriptures never defend the existence of God. Never. They never give an argument for does he exist, doesn't he exist. So what I want to do this morning, I'm going to step into this subject and ask the question, is God relevant to your life? And how is he relevant? How is he impacting you? Um, how, does, how does it play out in this, in this spiritual, religious kind of environment that we live in? And I'm not going to spend a lot of time, as we do this, trying to prove the existence of God. If that's where you're at, um, there's some great books out there. Lee Strobel, write him down. Write his name down. Go look for him. Um, Case for Christ is one of his books. It even was turned into a movie, a great movie, actually. So if you're not a reader, go watch the movie, and you're going to get a whole defense of does, is God who he says he is, and does he exist? If you're, if you're more of an intellect, you can pick up books by Ravi Zacharias. You can pick up books by Tim Keller, especially Reason for God, uh, Tim Keller's book, uh, really steps in and kind of expounds and, and looks at some of that. But what I want to do this morning is I want to step in and talk about this person named God. And I'm going to live with the understanding that you know that he exists. Even if you're here this morning and you're an atheist, and you would be at the complete opposite end of the spectrum and say, no, Adam, I'm an atheist. I don't even think God exists. I want to lean in and I want to talk about this person named God with the understanding I believe you know that he exists, yet we have this tendency to suppress that truth. And here's why we're going to talk about this. And this is going to lead into next week where we really talk about God with us uh, in the person of Jesus. Your and my view of God will determine how you live your life. That passage in 2 Timothy, when it says all this is going to happen because they've rejected the power, a lot of that living is because of how they view this person named God. So your view of God is going to determine how you live your life. When I say your view, I'm not taught, it's, it's, not, it's an indifferent thing. It's not a right or wrong. How do you view God? 
I mean, some of you are indifferent to him. Some of you, I don't really think he exists. Some of you, my view of God is he's this this grandfatherly figure up in heaven, this benevolent kind of guy that I can come to. Or some of you see him as loving. Some of you see him as full of vengeance and hate towards his enemies. Some of you, I mean, how how do you view God? And how I view God is going to go a long way to determining how I live my life. And Christmas, Christmas is all about God saying, get to know me. So we're going to step into this series and really wrestle with this. Now, let's talk about God. This morning, let's talk about God and unpack this reality. I want to start with this, the reality that you know that he's here. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, says this. So God created human beings in his own image. Pause there. What does that mean? What does that mean? Ever said of your kids, they're a, they're a chip off the old block? The apple didn't fall far from the tree? Uh, they, they look a lot like dad or look a lot like mom. I mean, this is what he's saying. God created human beings in his own image. So as you stand and look in the mirror, the person that is looking you in some way reflects your creator. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So both men and women, none of them are superior. They're both created in the image of God. Um, they're both, God saying, hey, you both bear the image of me. Now, this is a profound verse. What it says is every single one of you in some capacity mirrors and reflects your creator. Every one of you. In some capacity, you, you can know God in a way that the guinea pigs running around in a cage at my home cannot. It's just you're different from the rest of creation. Next verse. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. This is a profound verse. This is a, this is the, when I read this verse for the first time, it, it altered my course of how I, actually, how I actually preach, believe it or not. It says this, yet God has made everything beautiful in its own time. Some of you remember the bird song, there is a time, there's this time to kill, this time to heal, this, this whole, that's been turned into a famous song. And right out of that, it says, so there's a time where God was working his time to make everything beautiful, to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. He has planted eternity in the human what? So in every one of you, whether if you're here this morning, you say, Adam, I don't believe in God. I do not believe in God. What is true of you and what's true of the person that's sitting here and say, oh, my word, Adam, I'm so in love with Jesus. I'm a Christ follower. What's true of all points in between, both ends of the spectrum and all points in between, you're creating his image and you have eternity written on the human heart. Now, the verse goes on, but even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. So if you look at the whole context, there's this season for everything. God's at work, and we're sitting here going, oh, my word, how do we make this all work together? That's what we're craving for because the reason we ask that question is because eternity is written in your heart, which means, which means you know, you intuitively know there's more to life than the here and the now. You instinctually know that. The most brilliant atheist that I've ever read and engaged with know that. Now, that said, with that foundation, I want to unpack, I want to work through this passage, because I think it takes all of this and really drives at the stake, at the heart of who God is, is going to go a long way to determining how you live your life, and who is God, and why is this important, and why is he relevant to me, and, and why does this, what does all this mean? So Romans chapter 1 Page 935, and the Bible's there in the seats in front of you. Romans chapter 1. Let me set the context for this. You open this book up. Some of you new to the Bible are like, okay, Romans, like that's a city in Italy. It is. It's a city in Italy. It's capital. 
Um, and uh, Paul is writing to a group of Christians in Rome. And, he, and if you go back and read the verses before we get into here, he says, I cannot, I want to, I would love to come to you. And he wants to come to him. You begin to learn this is because, and, and, and other uh, places where he writes, because Rome is like the center of the world. It is like the influential city. It would be like me saying right now, I want to get right into a church in New York City. Like there's one core Christian group in New York City. I want to get to you guys because when I can influence you guys, Man, you guys influence the entire world. I mean, right now, flowing out of the cities, that's where cities influence our world. And so um, he's writing and saying, I want to come to you. I want to be with you. I've heard about your faith, he says. Your faith encourages me, and I want to encourage your faith. And this thing's important. That leads down to verse 16. So he's talking about their faith and how it encourages him, and, and he wants to come encourage them, and how he's, how he's eager to get there to, to, to preach this good news of Jesus Christ. And then verse 16. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. This is a, if you've been around the church in a while, you've likely heard this verse. Look at this next phrase. It is the what? Does that ring a bell with anything? Remember the verse we had on screen from 2 Timothy? What did it say that they rejected? What did they reject? They've got this spirituality. They've got this, they've got this form of godliness but they've rejected something and it leaves, them, it leaves them empty. And it says, so here it is. It is the power of God at work. What is the power of God at work? We'll go back. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. The Jew first and also the Gentile. So this is, this is the power that was missing in 2 Timothy. Now, saving everyone. Jew first and also the Gentile. Verse 17. This good news... This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. I love this. So we know God exists. We, we, understand, we intuitively, we're creating his image. We have eternity written in our hearts. And, and we, we know he exists. This good news then tells us how to be right with that God. So how do we be right with him? How, how do we do that? Well, this good news tells us, make us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by what? What's it say? This is accomplished from start to finish by what? Attending church? Saying prayers? Giving your money? Helping the poor? What does it say? Faith. Start to finish. It doesn't just say, that, it doesn't just say you get in, you, you, you get saved, and you come to heaven, and you're, you're locked up. I mean, you're good now. It says start to finish by faith. It doesn't say, okay, I, I make this prayer of faith, and I come to know Jesus, and now I'm a Christian, and now I'm going to get really, really busy obeying all the rules, and that's going to keep me in. It doesn't say that. Obedience is important, hugely important, but it doesn't say obedience keeps you in. Start to finish, it is faith. Faith. As the scripture says, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. That is the good news, the message of Jesus Christ, that he came. And we're going to talk very clearly about this next week. He came to God, came to be with us. He revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus. And he came to say, this is who I am, guys. This is who I am. Know me. Know me. Know all of me. See me. Touch me. Hold me. Laugh with me. Cry with me. See me in flesh. For I'm for you. And you can't fix yourself. You can't make it right. You need to trust me. Give yourself to me. Surrender. Whatever, all kinds of words have been used in the scriptures, but, but I'm going to put my trust, my faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Start to finish, and that makes me right. And that's the power of God. 
This is why I'm a pastor, to the core why I am a pastor. I was in school originally for social work, and I realized, my goodness, as I'm in this system, like, I want to be a part of something that can be so bold and so clear with the power of God, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, because that is what transforms lives. That is what transforms the community. That is the center of what everyone is craving for in this spiritual, trying to find this connection to everything. Now, look at verse 18. We're going to work through this because this this passage is so rich and so important to how you live life. Verse 18, but, now what's the word but? For those of you English, I I was horrible at English. (laughs) I was horrible at English. I struggled immensely with it. So I'm like, but those of you who are good at English, what is the word but? What is it? What's it called in English? Conjunction, right? So what is a Conjunction. I don't know, Adam. There's a little ditty we used to sing, the conjunction, what's your function? Some of you want to sing it right now, right? Some of you know. I see some of you laughing, right? I feel like put the little video up here on the screen. A conjunction, it's this, this joining of things, this contrasting of things, this saying, okay, so I just shared this good news. It is by faith, but, you're like, but, but what? But God shows his what? <laughs> when I run, I'm like, what does that mean? There's this incredible good news, and it is by faith, and you need to trust me, and I'm moving in your direction. And Paul's saying, or you read back, Paul said, I can't wait to come advance this message. I can't wait to, to come encourage you, and you encourage me. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who what? Suppress, this is so important, suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now you're like, whoa, no, wait a minute, Adam. We don't talk about that one a lot. We don't talk about this anger thing. And let me say this. Please come back next week. We're going to talk a lot about that anger piece next week. Now I wrestled with this all week. <laughs> when I wrote this message and I was even working through it again last night, I thought next week. It made me think of D.L. Moody. Um, D.L. Moody was a pastor in Chicago uh, around around 1900, and give or take uh, there, he served in that time span. And he, had a, he, was, a, he was a pastor of a um, very influential church in the nation, actually. Uh, he had Moody Institute, some of you know, Moody Bible Institute kind of flow out of that. You hear things on the radio from Moody. I mean, you see books published by Moody, all kind of founded by him. He was a pastor and evangelist to the core, and he loved reaching lost people with the message of Jesus. And um, he had this, this, this epiphany happen in his life where he stood up and he preached this message and he, and he actually broke it in half. He has message one and then come back next week for message two. So I'm going to talk and wrestle with, with, with who God is and the anger of God. And then I'm going to come back next week and really present Jesus to you. Well, guess what happened when he left his church that night? The great Chicago fire broke out. Wiped out most of the city. People, horrible tragedy in our nation's history. He never got to preach the second half of the message. So last night, I'm sitting there in my notes. I'm like, come back next week. <laughs> I'm going to trust God that he's sovereign in your life and my life. Come back next week. We're going to wrestle with this anger piece. Because I think we can't do it justice without looking at Jesus. And so come back next week for that. So, but God's showing his anger against, again, by, but why? But this, this is the key word. Notice the word Suppress. See the word suppress? So the anger that's being displayed is because people are suppressing the truth. Now that word suppress would indicate that you kind of know it. Now the cool thing is, if, if you look in the New if you have the New Living Translation, this is one of my favorite features of the New Living. See the little, little star asterisk that's behind wickedness? 
The New Living, what it does is it's trying to make, it's trying to bring the Greek language. It's not a word-for-word translation. Oh, oh, some, some of this is probably more than this. Maybe, anyway, <laughs> one down over trail. I don't want to go down. Uh, it, it's, um, it's not a word-for-word translation. The New Living is trying to take thought for thought. Because sometimes you don't always have exact words from one language to the next. So it's trying to capture a phrase and take the phrase and move it into English and make it very readable for us today. It's written in a sixth grade reading language, one of the lowest reading lang- one of the lowest reading the, of, of all the translations out there. So they're working really hard. But what they do, sometimes they run into these phrases, well, there's ways we could say this. And they give these little asterisks. And then down in the column, the bottom of the page, it tells you what. So if you follow this one down, so it says they suppress the truth by their wickedness. The new living just on their own says you another way to say this is who by their wickedness prevent the truth from what? Being known. If you were, some of you want, I don't know, Adam, I need a magnifying glass to see that down there. So what it says it could be translated is people suppress by their wickedness, they prevent the truth from being known. Now, remember the big idea I shared this morning? How you view God will determine how you live life. And we're going to, we're going to talk about that. But let me give you another, I think, reality. It's just the chicken and the egg. There's tension between these two. How I live my life will determine my view of God. Both are true. Both are hugely important. So what I'm saying to you is you are creating the image of God. Eternity is written on your heart. You instinctually know it. And we're going to talk about that a little more here in the next verses. But there's, we begin to suppress things. And I begin to live in a certain way, and sometimes the way I live greatly impacts who I understand God to be. I want to challenge you to live well. Don't mess around with sin. I mean, I, it's amazing to me some of the things we feed on and we, we, we gravitate to, and we begin to live in these patterns of life that form, and it completely shapes how we view God. God said, man, it's, it's, my anger is against this. Now look at verse 19. He's going to tell you why his anger is against and this is, this is what's, I think, huge. Verse 19. So they suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. So remember the beginning of the Bible. God opens up. He doesn't defend and doesn't say, doesn't try and prove his existence. He just says people know, but they suppress How do they know, God? Well, here it is, verse 19. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. Well, how's he done that? Look at verse 20. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. What does that verse say? What does it say to you? As you look at that, and it says to me, when I stand before God one day in heaven, account from, and to give an account for my life, which the scriptures say all of us will do, I can't look at him and say, well, God, 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 you know, I didn't know. Like, I grew up in a family that didn't talk to me about Jesus. God, I grew up in a family that didn't take me to church. God, I grew up in a country where Christianity was this tiny little minority. God, my dad was an atheist. God, I had a lot of pain and hurt in my life that really caused me to doubt you. You know what God's going to say? Did you look around? Did you pay attention to the the internal gut feeling of eternity in your heart that I've given you? 
I mean, when, when you look at the world, this is why I say all the time, people sometimes set the Bible up against science and science against the Bible. Good science will always validate good biblical interpretation. I think sometimes there's bad biblical interpretation that good science exposes. I'll say that. But the two run together because when you look out at the world, at the, at the macro view, let's take the macro view. You look out at the universe. I used to love in upstate New York, Tanya and I, where we met. It was in the Adirondack Mountains. And there was very little. I mean, you had to drive a half an hour just to get to your first Walmart. I mean, just to get to the first um, hospital. I mean, you're out in the middle of nowhere. You could hike for days and never cross a road going through the mountain. I mean, it was wilderness. And we're up in this wilderness, and I love to go out at night, especially when the moon was a new moon, so there's no moon in the sky, and I'd stand and look up at the sky, and all I saw painted across the sky was the Milky Way. Those of you who have seen that, I mean, it is breathtaking. It is like, wow. So the macro view, when you look out at the universe, and you look out at our, our world, and the sun and the sky, and the moon, and, and you begin to look at the Hubble telescope, it's brought back all these magnificent pictures of the world. It screams at us, there is a creator. It absolutely screams at us, there is a creator. Now, go to the micro view, and take the microscope, and look inward. Look at the human molecular structure of, of us. Look at how we're made and how we're put together. It is mind-blowing. Every, every time I go to the doctors and I learn more and about my body, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. How does anyone deny a creator of the universe? It is mind-blowing. And God's going to say to us one day when we're standing in front of him, it was all out there for you to see. It was all there. I wrote eternity in your heart. I created you in my image. You suppressed it. You pushed it away because you really didn't want to see it. You had this gut like, ah, and you pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. God's saying, see me. I've painted myself all over the sky. I've painted myself all over your human body. I've painted myself as you stand at the, at the shore and feel the power of the waves or you go for a hike and stand and look out across the mountain or, or this past summer as we stood at the Grand Canyon, I just stood there and you, and you see the world around you. Your five senses are screaming at you, I exist. And only let's say I exist, but it's telling you something about me, my nature, my power. But we suppress it. Now, look at, look at this next verse. Not only do we suppress, not only do we suppress, but we also do this thing called exchange. Because you are created to worship, something must capture your allegiance. You're too small. There's more to life. You know that instinctually. It's written on your heart. So something must, you've got to give yourself to something. So look at verse 21. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him. I want to pause here. This is really big for me. If you're here this morning and you're an atheist, you don't think God exists. Do you know what's true of you? You bring glory to God just by your existence. What's not true of you is you don't worship him. Worship him is giving him his worth, his value, his place in life. It's a big difference. But so God's saying, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. 
Let's kind of create these ideas of what God could be, guys. Let's try and, I'm going to suppress and I'm going to push back. And so now I'm going to make this exchange. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Some of you, some of you passionate Christ followers have read some of the arguments of people that go at Christianity. And you think, you guys are just, you really want to say that? Like, do you realize what you're saying? You came from a big bang? Like, really? Like, you, you start to hear this stuff spin out. You're like, really? You th- do you know how foolish that sounds? It would be, f- I mean, it's harder to put your faith in a, an explosion that created this than it is to put your faith in a creator God of heaven and earth. I mean, it's like, what? It doesn't make sense. But it's, their minds are darkened. So, so as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, I love that, the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. And I would add, you say, well, I don't have any of them in my house. I don't, I don't set these little things around. I would say, and worshiped your marriage, your spouse, your kids, worshiped success, your checkbook, your bank account, your career, worshipped the corner office, popularity in school, likes and followers on my social media. We begin to live for these other things. God is saying, come and see me. Come and have me. Come and, come and be with me. Wow, God, God, I'm not sure. I'm going to suppress. I'm going to push back. And then I'm going to turn and make an exchange. I'm going to, I'm going to live for something else. That's what I'm going to go after. And I want to say, guys, please, your view of God will determine how you live your life. Love for you to read this week. Versus I, I, wanted to, I tried so hard to work it into the message this week, and it just didn't fit. <laughs> Unless you wanted to be here for another hour. Um, so the rest of this chapter is profound. Because of all this, life gets awful. And you read that in the rest of this chapter, and it, it, it just, the hell breaks loose on humanity because of this. And you see the results of it. But it all comes back to how they view God. Now, what I want to kind of bring us to a landing with, there's another verse in Scripture that means a lot to me that really drives at this. You're, how you view God, how you pers- how do you view him? Have you ever thought about that? It's not a right or wrong question. But it's important to be honest. How do you right now view your creator? Who is he to you? There's a verse, um, profound verse. I read this, if you were with us a few uh, weeks ago, when we closed down our series on money, making change, we called it. Um, we talked about this. We looked at this passage. I'm going to look at it from a different angle. This is a passage where this, this rich kind of king guy goes away, and he, he needs his stuff to be taken care of, so he leaves some of his things with one guy. He gives him five measures of his things. With the next guy, he gives him two measures of his things. With the next guy, he gives one measure of his things. And he says, take care of my things, and I'm going to come back, and there's going to be an accounting of what you've done with my things. So he comes back, and the first guy says, I've taken your five. I've done good work. I've invested. I'm returning you ten. The next one says, I've, I've done good work. I'm returning you four. So they both have, I mean, it's 100% return. Now, then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, now this is Jesus telling this parable in the story. He came and said, Master. So, so in the story, Jesus is kind of painting the master to be God, God himself, kind of this, this imagery. Master. 
I knew you were what? I knew you were a harsh man. There's some of you right now in this room that see God as a harsh God. Be honest with it. Master, I knew you were a harsh man. I knew you were an angry dude. I knew you were, had this, this standard of holiness that I'm like, whoa, I'm not sure about that. And I knew you were a harsh man. Harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was what? How do you feel about God? Push in on it. How do you feel about your creator? Are you afraid of him? Are you, are you, do you shake when you think about him? See, we hate his shame. We put, we suppress. I don't want to think about this. Let's push it away. Let's push. I know he's out there. I know he's kind of, I kind of know it. I instinctually know it. It's written on us. I push it away. I push it away. How do you think and feel about your God, about your creator? Now, so, so I was afraid I would lose your money. I was afraid. I was, I was so afraid of you. I was, I was afraid of this accounting that I was going to have to give to you. I was afraid of your anger, and we're going to talk about that at length next week. So I hid it in the earth. I went out and dug a hole. Look, here is your money. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant, if you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least, at least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, don't miss this. Then he ordered, Take the money from this servant and give it to the one with 10 bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have been taken away, will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I say to you, your view of God will determine how you live your life. How do you view him? He has created you. He has wired you to instinctually know there's more to life than the here and the now. And you have this draw out. But again, it kind of gets big for us. It kind of gets scary for us. We kind of, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. One of the things I've learned over the years of walking, um, some of you, it's not a secret. I've sat with counselors over the different times in my journey. And one of the things I've always, I learned early on is I have a really hard time. They, they'd ask me a question, Adam, how does that make you feel? Well, I don't know. I know what I want to do. I know what I want to make happen. No, no, no. That's not what I ask. How does it make you feel? We struggle with this, especially in our relation to God. How does he make you feel? Are you afraid of him? Are you terrified of him? Maybe go to the other extreme. Some of you are too cozy with him. And you're, you're walking around like you guys are like, yeah, man, we are buds. How does he make you feel? Who is he to you? And it goes a long way to determining how you live your life. I'd say pay attention, step in. I would say this, many see, say they believe God, yet they live completely disconnected. And I'm talking to those of you in the room who are followers of Jesus and those of you in the room who, man, this may be your first Sunday ever even in a church. I'm talking to you, if you've been at this church for 60 years, or you've been at this church for six years. I'm talking to all of us. I'm talking to those of you who say, I'm a passionate follower of Jesus, and those of you who say, I'm not even sure I know who Jesus is. We're going to start at the ground level with this series and say, who is God to you? And how do you feel about him? It's going to go a long way to determining how you live your life. I, I hear people say, you know what, Adam? 
God is sovereign. He's in complete control of life. And I sit back and say, well, why are you so full of anxiety? There's a disconnect. You've suppressed something. You've pushed something away that you're not being honest with. You're saying one thing, and I don't doubt you believe it, but it's disconnected from the way you live because there's something about God you're not stepping into. Others will say to me, others will say to me, man, God, oh, man, they, they talk about the hope that you have. They'll, they'll quote verses like Romans 5 about we live in this hard age and it's so difficult. And as you persevere, it builds character and character builds and all this to give you hope. And the people talk about the hope we have in God, the hope we have in the gospel of Jesus, but they walk around like they lost their last friend and they're completely lonely and depressed and aching. Others of you, others of you would say, well, forgive. God's a forgiving God. He's a gracious God. Yet you live with such bitterness in your heart and such hatred, playing out imaginary conversations in your mind with the people all around you. Some of you say, well, God is patient, but you're angry and short-fused. Others of you say, well, God's a provider and God will take care of me, but yet you live with absolute worry or the other end of complete greed, grabbing hold. Who is he to you? Our behavior that drives out of life comes from this understanding of who God is. You know, I'm going to say something else, push in here. We even do church at times as though God were not here. I've been guilty of this a lot as a pastor. We are happier at times living with predictability rather than expecting God will do the unusual things in our lives. If God is going to be God, my life is going to become unpredictable. I even get a little messy. I sat down with my kids and I read this verse to them a week ago. I shared... um, A lot kind of spinning for me right now. I sat down with my kids and I said, um, guys, what are your favorite Bible stories in the scriptures? I ask you the same question. What are your favorite Bible stories in the scriptures? Some of you are going to quote, you know, mine, one of my favorite, David and Goliath. David's my favorite character in the Bible. Some of you know David, right? If you've even been around church, you probably have heard this story. You've at least heard the reference, this little guy who brings down the giant. What else are your favorite stories? Some of you say, well, Moses, when he splits the Red Sea. Some of you say, well, well I, I like when the sun stands still. That is a cool story. Some of you say, well, man, I like, I like this guy named Elijah. When he, has, when he has the whole, everyone around him, it seems to be against him. And he stands up. And God, and he, and, he, and, he, and he puts the people to the test, and he has them have this big altar, and they douse it with all this water, and he calls dad to God and says, God, show yourself to this, this lost and perverse generation and these people that you've called me to speak to. God, and fire comes down and consumes the entire altar. I mean, there's so many stories in the scriptures. And you know what I've come to realize about those stories? They're not stories. Do you know what they are? They're the holy scriptures, the living, breathing word of God. But you know what they're pointing to? They're pointing, as Jesus says in John 5, the scriptures are here to point you to me, to me. But you know what? Jesus says, you know what? You aren't coming to me. You fall in love with this book. 
Because falling in love with a book makes life so predictable and, and you can study it and know it and have it all locked up and yeah, I'm good. But they point you to me. All of those stories in the scripture point us to a living creator, God of the universe, that ultimately points us to a person named Jesus, which we're gonna, I want to intro next week, come back next week. And it's like, wow. When I read David and Goliath, I'm not reading about a guy named David. I'm reading about a God who is faithful in the midst of a lot of brokenness to deliver his people. When I'm reading about a story of a sun hanging in the sky, I'm not reading about a battle that happened to be won with this crazy freak nature thing that happened. I'm reading about a God who stood up and intervened for his people and says, see me, the powerful creator, God of heaven and earth. That's what I read in the scriptures. And, and I read this verse to my kids. Guys, when the, world's, when the worlds are spinning around me, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That God that brought down the giant is the same God that's alive and active here today and is working in the same way back then as he's going to work today. See him and know him. Push in and get to know your creator. You've been wired for it. You've been made for it. And your life will find completion when you stop suppressing and step in. And when you stop exchanging and instead turn to him and say, God, you are who I've been made for. I want to get to know you. And then he gives us Jesus, who ultimately, ultimately is the picture of who he is. Full of grace and mercy and patience and long-suffering. And says, come and see me. And we're going to talk about that next week with great, great passion and energy. So we'll welcome you back next week. With that said, let me pray for us. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you more than anything for who you are. And God, I love how you've displayed yourself in, in nature, in creation, the world around us. God, everything about this world screams with a loud megaphone that you're here that you're powerful, that you're in control, that, that, man, God, nothing catches you by surprise. God, the order that's in our body, that's in the world, that's in nature, the laws that govern our, this thing called the earth that spins around this thing called the sun. God, thank you for who you are. God, man, more than anything, I pray right now for myself and for every person here that we would lean in that we would be honest with our feelings about you, that we would be honest with our apprehensions, that we would be honest with the gut-level hurts and pains, that we'd be honest with what we, what we just put on the table, God, this is who I think you are, because, man, how we view you, what we do with you, and it goes a long way to how we live our life. I don't want any of us in this room to have to stand before you one day and say, I didn't know, God, and have you say, did you not look at the world around you? I don't want anyone in this world to have to say, well, God, I was so afraid of you, I went and dug a hole and buried everything that you've been given to me. God, we want to stand before you with open hands and hand back to you all that you've given us and say, God, we lived on your mission. We lived doing the things you've asked us to do. We lived without fear. We lived because we trusted you. We lived for you, expecting you to show up and expecting you to work. That's how we want to stand before you one day. So to that end, I pray, God, may you be who you are in our lives. May we let you be that, not suppress it, push it away, and exchange it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.